Hi there and welcome back to Wednesday's Child. Joining me again today is Sarah. Hi there, Sarah. Hi, Debbie. So Sarah and I are going to be picking up on a really thorny issue today. We're going to be talking about BMI, something that um, gets me on my hobby horse quite a lot, and no doubt you as well, Sarah. Um, so for those that are new to this channel, and I suspect the vast majority of you listening know that BMI means body mass index, and it tends to be the barometer by which those in the healthcare profession judge whether somebody is or is not suffering from an eating disorder. So just thought we'd kind of kick that discussion off around, is it, is it high time that medical professionals just looked elsewhere for other diagnostic scenarios? to judge whether somebody is poorly or not. I, I'd be really interested to know from you then, Sarah. So did it ever get raised with you about your BMI at the point that you were considered to be formally anorexic? I think because when I finally got to the doctor and was diagnosed, it was without doubt clear to everybody that I was struggling in a million ways, that actually BMI wasn't really an indicator at that point. My issue with the BMI is that it was an indicator for my discharge. And that was the only target and the only goal that anyone ever set me when I was an inpatient. So were you very, um, you, you, you were very cognizant that they were giving you a specific figure that you had to reach to be discharged? Yeah, definitely. And the thing that, that makes it even worse now on reflection is that actually I've, I've spoken before that my illness was very much fueled around being the best at something or um, achieving certain targets and certain goals. So the second that the consultant slapped on a, a BMI target for me to reach, which bear in mind was a stupidly tiny BMI for what my actual body needed and my mind needed, that's all that anorexia was gunning for. She was, was absolutely gunning for that number, that BMI number, so I could achieve that target. But then lo and behold, once I got um, released from dip, uh, dis, uh, sorry, inpatients, I then had my massive relapse that I've spoken about because nothing was fixed. So when I was by myself, anorexia had hold of me. There was no difference whatsoever. And I went way past, way below what I actually was um, when I had my first inpatient admission. So it wasn't at the beginning of my diagnosis that it became a big issue. It was actually at the point where I really needed people to be helping out my head that it became a big issue for me. And I think that's the problem. I think for as long as healthcare professionals or, or the kind of um, the whole circuit around eating disorders, for as long as that diagnostic measure remains central, it stops people looking at the fact that actually time and time again, we try and reiterate to people that this is an illness of the mind. You can't tell by the size of somebody's body how bad their struggle is, how poor their you know, state of mental hunger is. You cannot possibly know. And the number of people that have reached out to, to me during the pandemic to explain that they haven't even been given a second appointment or been given an opportunity to be referred because either a doctor has got them on the scales and then looked in his little book and said, oh dear, she doesn't fall below 17.5, so no, go away and have a sandwich. Or that hospitals have said, well, we just wouldn't consider you because actually your weight is much higher, you know. And, and this is all levels of healthcare professionals. It's not some naive practitioner. This is people that have been in the medical profession for a long time, still looking up in their little black book that says, you must be a BMI of 17.5 or below to be considered to have an eating disorder. And it's... Just and it's a parameter that just doesn't, it doesn't match or suit anything that we also know about how bodies really function and how minds really, really work. And you're talking about an illness also that thrived 
it's it, it's it's perpetuated by fear isn't it and anxiety and, and stress and worry so the second that you're given a, a set set of parameters it's about actually staying within them or or below because you don't want to get to the the top end of the parameters you know my i honestly truly believe that my big hinge behavior that that cracked me on my road to um, real recovery was not weighing myself that that was the one thing that once i'd started to really break through that that it started to allow me to open up other, other behaviors to start challenging. So, but all the time that I was being supported in services, it was about my weight. It was about being in the range. So the soon as actually I came out of services and I could stop talking about weight so much, it became something that therefore then led to my recovery. So I can remember having a conversation with my own GP because he was quite insistent. He wanted me to go in and get weighed by the, the nurse practitioner on a regular basis. And I can remember having a conversation about explaining that knowing my weight really doesn't help me. You've either got to do blind weighing or, you know, not at all. And I remember him saying, you know, he was a really good GP, but him saying, but if we don't weigh you, I don't know whether your eating disorder is, you, whether you are still eating disordered or not. And, you know, that, that was a really interesting kind of reflection for me of like, for him, he wasn't saying, I, I don't know until I talk to you about your mental health, your anxiety, judge whether you're depressed today or ask you whether you're thinking about food all the time. It wasn't anything about that. It was, unless I weigh you, I don't know on my little chart whether you have or have not got an eating disorder. And it's people having the time to really talk to, to people who are suffering about their day, about their, and, and if you talk to someone about their day, just on more than one occasion, because the first time you speak to an anorexic patient about their day, you'll get full of bullshit because anorexia will be in charge of that conversation. So they'll say, oh yeah, I've got two bowls of cereal, and I sit in front of the TV all day, I don't do this, don't do that, when you know that's just crap. So you're gonna have to have that conversation a couple of times before the truth before anorexia lets the truth start to come out. And you can hear and you can recognize patterns really, I think, quite, quite quickly if you really listen for the sort of behaviors that we know are quite a, a generic element of the, of the illness. I know everybody's illness is different and everyone's therefore journey and pathway has to be personalized and different. But there, there, is, a, there is a lack of uniqueness about anorexia as well and some of the behaviors. You know, lots of, I, I, I speak to people, I don't know whether you find this, that, that say that, oh, well, staying, being, being ill keeps me special, it keeps me unique. But actually, if you look at, if you unpick and unpeel the layers, there actually isn't that much that's special and unique about anorexia whatsoever. There's a, a very similar pattern. Um, so if you start to really listen to people and, and stop thinking about weight and thinking about the conversation that they're having with themselves and the behaviors that they're doing with themselves, it's that that then you can start to unpick and unravel and coach and support folks through it, which is a really long process. That's the thing. Why people aren't ever getting to the bottom of who has and who hasn't got an eating disorder is because the time it takes for a nurse practitioner or a GP to have those more extended conversations about, you know, where are your behaviours at and how are you feeling today? And let's talk about what's going on in your mood. That's a longer appointment than sitting her down in the chair for three minutes, taking, you know, weighing her on the scales and looking up that figure and, you know, reaching a number and saying yes or no. Exactly. And most GPs, you know, give them their due. They've got a million one illnesses to worry about and to, to know about and to learn about. They're not necessarily going to be specific illnesses of the mind. Um, but people should not be turned away because they don't fit on a rubbish BMI chart. 
Um, no. The way it fuels it as well. I remember my, the, for, for me personally, BMI had two, two things. It had, first, it had um, the fear of going beyond that, that range that I was told made me inverted commas healthy, which by the way was 18.1. That's what my account, that's what my consultant said I had to be in order to be healthy, was 18.1. Wow. I mean, I'm so far beyond that now. My, my body is probably almost as healthy as it needs to be at the minute, and I could, I'm, I'm miles away from 18.1. But it had the opposite effect as well with my compulsive exercise in it being the parameter of me having to like, I used to do my BMI like three or four times in a gym session. Um, you know, what, what exercise was getting my BMI slightly lower than the, the, the time it was before and all that kind of thing. It's just another thing to be judging yourself against when you're pooling. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, honestly, it's just, it's such an inadequate measure. It really is. And I, I know it's something we've just got to constantly bang the drum about. And I, I think why I'm always so pleased when, so I had another inquiry in the last week or so from um, a bunch of GPs that just want to understand a little bit more about eating disorders. And I'm, I'm always really glad that those opportunities have happened because it just gets to challenge the myths really, doesn't it? About you know, how do you know when somebody does or doesn't have an eating disorder? And the NHS have experts by experience, don't they, that, that can go around and can support folks, but I just don't think they're used enough. Like, no one's ever approached me and said, you know, for my local health authority, oh, come on, Sarah, you know, you're, we know you, you're, you've been in the system, you've been through it all, we know the journey you've been on, Can't come, and, come and talk to folks, come and, come and help out in this way. Um, I think, honest, I'm not, you know, trying to make ourselves sound marvellous, but I think people like you and I that 100% know that, absolute gut-wrenching fear when you're sat on your kitchen floor or you you've been on the loo all day or whatever it is and you've lived it and you can you've also lived it as a grown-up so that you've had you've had a mortgage to pay and you've had children to look after or whatever um i think those people are crucial because that's when you can really look in the whites of someone's eye and say you know what i know where you've been and it's hell but you can you can pass it you can get through it I do hope that that is going to be one of the things that perhaps even through this sort of COVID scenario that lived experience will be judged to be more important than letters after the name of somebody being a, considered to be an expert, for example. You know, we cannot say that only a doctor knows everything there is to know about COVID. We have to ask the patient what, you know, we have to understand from them what was it they were experiencing? What did they go through? How did it feel like? Especially when, you know, they're talking about this kind of long COVID sort of post viral thing um and i think it's similar with eating disorders how can you possibly know what it feels like unless you have you know really really lived it so maybe it's for as you say people like us to stand up and be counted for more and i, I would say anybody that's listening to this if they think well actually i would be prepared to share my experience with my health authority in my part of the uk well actually, this is a request from me today, get in touch with Wednesday's child, give me your name, give me your health authority, I will contact that health authority and I'll say, I will ask them what they are doing about using that lived experience to influence how they develop future services around eating disorders. Because it's okay for us to sit there and just complain and say the service isn't good enough, but the way we help one another for the future, our sisters, our daughters, our family, our mothers, our brothers, the way we help is to bring that lived experience into the future of healthcare. 
Well, I'll be your first one. I'm Sarah Ledger. I live in Middlesbrough, the northeast of England. I'll be your first one. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll top and tail it. I'll do this part of the country. You do your part of the country. We'll meet some lovely people in the middle and, you know, spread the word as soon as we can. Excellent. <laughs> God help them. I'm Debbie Watson. I'm in East Anglia. God help Suffolk and Norfolk. <laughs> Ginger as well. So, you know, God, it's even worse for her. Yeah. <laughs> There was another topic we were going to talk about today, Sarah, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, that kind of process that we can coin as mechanical eating and how important that is in recovery. And that idea that despite everything that's going on in our minds around what is a appropriate portion or when we should eat and when we should stop eating, just that need to keep pushing through no matter what. Again, just any experience you want to share around that? I think for me, I'm a real advocate of mechanical eating at certain stages of recovery. I know there's a lot of people that aren't, and that's absolutely fine. Like I said, it's a very personal journey. But for me, I just think that you have to go through a process where you are forcing yourself to eat. You've got to go through a process where you, you have to keep that structure so that your mind, you're telling yourself that in two or three hours' time, I'm going to have X, I'm going to have Y. I suppose the problem with having that structure in that mechanics is that then at some point you do have to break that as well. But without that process at the beginning, um, I, 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 would, I was never hungry. I don't know about you. The beginning part when I, when I was in recovery or when I realized I, was, I had an eating disorder, I was never hungry. And I was never hungry because my mind was telling me not to eat. Um, the second you start to get into that mechanical process, you know, a couple of weeks into it, you then start to get hunger signals. But if you wait for the hunger signals to come, you'd never start the process in the first place. So kind of make it for me, it was making myself, I, breakfast was always the key. It was always the, if I, if I missed breakfast and actually even today, sat here now in the position that I am, if I miss breakfast, something starts up in my head to start having a little nag at me about, Oh, well, if you miss breakfast, then you, maybe you could last a little bit longer um so breakfast you know was still is my absolute key 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 part part of the day that I have to eat and that then just sets me off in a recovery mindset all day um but but yeah I I just think making sure if you wait until you're hungry you're never gonna eat and then I suppose the other fear though is that which we all have is that then at some point you will get ravenously hungry to the point where you feel like you're never going to stop eating and you've got to go through those two opposite cycles, I think. You have to go through them. And that's the journey. That's the, that's the fight, the getting up every single day and absolutely just fighting, fighting, fighting for recovery. Because without going through those two key areas for me, I never would have got to the part where I actually could trust my hunger signals and I knew what they were and I could start making choices for me rather than what I knew I had to eat. Did you have anything yeah, Oh, Absolutely, I did. And I think, you know, the word trust that you use is what's really important there. I, I, I found extreme hunger was quite scary. I, you know, I, and my extreme hunger was to the point that actually it was almost, I, I felt really humiliated if I had to eat with other people because I realised actually, you know, they were used to serving me up a small portion of lasagna thinking... Debbie's still recovering. She only wants a small one. And I'm looking at the kind of five other portions left in the bowl thinking, I could probably just take a spoon and eat the whole damn thing, you know? And, and that used to really freak me out that I was that hungry. And all I had to keep telling myself is you aren't eating just for today. You are eating for all those years when you have failed to properly serve your body and your brain. So no matter, and this is the other thing about like, um, 
you know, it, it, and they say comparison is the thief of all joy. And it's so true when it's in eating disorder recovery. The one thing you cannot do is sit opposite somebody else at a table and think, oh, well, they're only eating that size portion. So perhaps that's what's appropriate to me. I would say, you know, if you go to a cafe and you have one sandwich and you're hungry after another bloody one, even if your friend's still limping through the first half, just keep eating. Just because the only way you get to that level of body trust is to acknowledge it. There is, and I, I think this is where people end up in quasi-recovery because they might initially start on that and then they get petrified that the body's never going to stop. This hunger just won't ever be satiated. And then they stall their recovery was what I learned the hard way after several times of kept falling backwards was you've just got to push through. And then eventually the body says, this is what is the right amount for me. And at this point I'm satiated. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. And I can go to bed knowing I've had enough today. But that mindset that that's similar for lots of things, isn't it? So yes, you've got to just push through that extreme hunger and keep eating and eating and eating because at some point it will it will subside, but it's like all the other ugly things as well. So like edema, you know, your puffiness. I, I, sw- I would swallow up like a flipping balloon. But if I'd stopped recovery at that point, then I was always going to be swelling up like a balloon every time I allowed myself, you know, to, to eat properly. So I had to face the fact that for, I, I was swollen up for quite some time. Um, and it was painful, like to go through that, that physical yeah. pain in order to now be a situation where actually I know that my arms are just this size. It's not this, they're not, they're not inflamed. They're not painful. This is just the size that I am. But um, that's where tactics is really important. I think, I mean, I, you know, that whole thing of um, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. You know, when I had the edema, I, I ended up buying um, shoes and slippers that were bigger because yeah. I knew my feet were going to be bad. If I kept trying to put my small shoes on or my smaller clothes on I was always going to get reminded and feel that my body was terrible and giant like and whatever so that's where you have to change that mindset and say you know if it means having jogging bottoms with elasticated waists on and if it means having shoes that are two sizes bigger but you can get them on when you want to leave the house with your edema feet just do yeah. it I ditched my I, uh, I went wireless bras for a while I ditched all my wired bras because just wearing a wired bra it just felt like I had it like a some sort of prison on my chest it was constriction so- around your chest yeah, yeah I had that yeah. So I just, I just went back to crop tops and bouncy boobs for a bit. Um, and yeah, I didn't feel particularly feminine. But at that point in time, my journey was about actually making myself well. And I would get my femininity back and put my nice sexy underwear on the second that my boobs stopped feeling like they, that they really had. It felt, it felt worse than it did when I was breastfeeding. And that's pretty painful, breastfeeding. So you can imagine like, you know, so, so and, and it's like, you know, great big massive Martha pants, whatever it is, you, you will you will be able to be the fem- the female and the wonder or the wonderful man that you're desperate to be once you've gone through that and you're patient with your recovery. On the other side is that life that you were absolutely desperate for and you totally deserve. You just need a period of time where you give in to the fact that you need to recover. And that means if that means sloggy pants and big bras, then so be it. And maybe the part of this is why what we're doing with with this podcast is really important around the narrative and being honest that actually it's pretty shitty and there is the ugly crap. Because I think if you don't know that and you just get told, oh, life will be so much better when you're eating better, you know, because yes, that is true. But what the people like that want to tell you that because they just want to force you into recovery that's the the positive panda stuff but you've also got to do the bit around saying just like when you go through puberty 
you know, oh, you'll feel wonderful when you're a young adult. Yes, but you also get acne skin and you have a, you know, it's horrible when a, the first boy doesn't want to go out with you or whatever. It's a bit like that. It's, you know, my skin was really bad when I started to recover. I, you know, for some reason, it just kind of reacted to the way I was treating. My skin got really itchy. Um, my hair seemed to just behave really oddly. Lots of different things happened that I wasn't prepared for. And for me, I mean, you know, you talk about edema. I knew I had to come off laxatives. I'd made them such a habit. And naturally, there was going to be a, a bit of a point at which it was going to take me days and days and days to pass anything. And then when I did, it was going to hurt like hell. And then I was going to feel really bloated and swollen. You just have to ride with it. Because every time I lapsed back into buying myself another packet of laxatives, I'd gone back into abusing myself again. And it's like, Lex is early, you know, sitting on the loo for hours. I know we, we've spoken about how your, your tummy, your tummy hurts when you're in anorexia recovery and eating disorder recovery, because like you've said in the past, it's elastic and therefore it needs, you know, it needs help getting back to that kind of that stretchable state it needs to be in. So it, your stomach knacks and I would sit on, I would literally, I would eat and I would know that I'd have these massive periods of severe wind and then, and then great big poos. So I would eat, I'd have a drink, and then I would just go and sit in the toilet with my phone. And I would, I could be there. It might be productive, it might not be productive, but I couldn't risk it, it being productive while I was in the supermarket or at the park with Amy. Um, so I would just, and I was off work. So what better to do than spend your day sat on the toilet? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's nothing like you know, as a grown woman, when you're sat on the loo, you've got your pants around your ankles, and you're you're watching crap on YouTube. I, you, I would sit and I'd be in tears, thinking, is this really my life? But the answer, no, that was that tiny chunk of time that I needed to do in order to get recovered so that now this is my life. Yeah. And, it, and I think it's worth remembering that any, any illness, or any injury that somebody goes through, there are recovery phases. And in every other illness or injury, you know, you'll reach out and you'll tell your story to people about, I don't know, how you're broken leg is recovering or how you're getting over something like cancer and you expect a level of compassion and sympathy and understanding for all the hurdles that will come through that recovery journey why should we think anything differently about an eating disorder you don't necessarily need to say to your mum your dad or your lover that i now need to go and sit on the toilet for two hours if that's okay you know because i'm not sure if i'm going to do a big poo today you, you don't necessarily need to have that graphic conversation but actually everybody wants you to be well and you know if if it helps to articulate some of what you're going through to help people understand then you're doing yourself a favor and you're doing them a favor that goes right back doesn't it to the, what you started at the beginning about how the healthcare professionals need to really embrace people with this with this experience because if you know that you know you're you're, for, you're forewarned so you're not you're not then thinking that there's something wrong with you because you sat on the toilet for hours or because you're on your kitchen floor in bits in the middle of a, an extreme hunger phase or you can't physically leave the house because you're so anxious and in such pain because your skin hurts so much you know that it's part of the process and the GPs also and then the healthcare professionals know honestly that it is part of the process so they can maybe stop just focusing on on the weight and saying to people I'll tell you what I'm not going to weigh you today but how's your kitchen floor looking how's that going? you know yeah I actually talk to people about the, the stuff that they've been working on and also it's a trade-off isn't it so here we are we've just talked about some of the negative rubbish that you go through in recovery but I think if you get into that state if you're finding yourself sat on the loo or bawling your eyes out at your edema feet or whatever it is I would just say get a piece of paper and do the kind of the, the kind of 
almost the fours and against. And just remind yourself for all those negative things, and let's face it, there's a handful of them that you are going to go through for a few weeks and months. But then write that list on the other side of every reason why I'm going through this now to get to that other side of the piece of paper. What is it I'm going to gain? Well, I'm going to gain, you know, a sense of kind of femininity back or, you know, masculinity, whatever it is. I'm going to gain my body back. I'm going to gain the ability to socialize without being knackered and needing to go to bed at six in the evening. My brain is going to be sharper. My job is going to be easier. I'm going to achieve my A-level results or my degree easier. I will get to be that doctor or that, you know, beautician, whatever it is I want to do. I will get to travel the world. I will achieve a healthy, happy relationship. I won't argue with my family. Well, that's a bloody big list. These are all great reasons to continue to recover. So it is very, very much just short-term pain for long-term gain. And it ultimately, the biggie that it gives you, it means that you don't have that internal conflict. And that's, that's, that's the bit, that for me, looking back, you know, I've gained so much since um, entering recovery and then getting to the stage that I am. But the one thing that I'm the most grateful for is I'm not arguing with myself 24 hours a day. Yeah. I'm not making myself feel shit 24 hours a day for doing the thing that actually I need to do to keep alive. Um, and that's the thing. I can now sit and just... I, 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 honestly, I'll sit now and I'll go, oh, I've not, I've not talked to myself for a while because it's just... That voice just is, isn't as present. Um, and only, only somebody that's been through an eating disorder really understands how that, you know, that moment your eyelashes creep back and you open your eyes and your head's on the pillow and you immediately start thinking, yeah. how many hours until I'm allowed to eat? How much exercise have I got to do today? And what have I got to yeah. stop trying? Yeah. What am I going to have the day after? What's for tea? It's eight o'clock. What am I having on the 14th of October, 2024? <laughs> how can I get myself out of that family event today so that I don't have to eat? How can I avoid seeing my best friend just because I know she talked about a meal? What excuse can I make? You know, all that crap that just is so exhausting and you just, you gain all that back. And I, I, I mean, I know we're short of time and I, I kind of want to wrap up today, but one thing I just want to go on from that, and I think it, it's really important, is um, I've just uh, written something this week about uh, people making a decision about whether it's right or wrong to go back to university, either starting university or um, returning to. And I know kind of COVID issues side people will be making those decisions. But I know that we're helping some people who are still in those final throes of deciding, it's September, do I return, do I not, am I well enough? I think I just wanted to use this opportunity just to say for all those reasons that we've just talked about, about how long recovery takes, how important it is to inject every amount of effort and energy into it. If there's any doubt in your mind that actually you could, you wouldn't be able to go away back to university or back to your studies or whatever and maintain a level of concentrated recovery, then there is no harm in delaying what your dream ambition for your career or your education path is to get well. The longer you put off getting well from anorexia, the worse it will get. There, it does not, it's not an illness that disappears. Take that from Sarah and myself because we both no. know it. You know, they, they always say early intervention is important, but if you've gone beyond that point, all you can do now is stay committed to your recovery. And sometimes that means putting other things on hold. I didn't have the strength or the willpower to work and recover so I had to make that really really difficult decision if I'd have chosen to keep working I, I, I wouldn't be here it's as simple as that so I, I had two choices to work or recover I had to lose my job 
and all the things that that, that potentially could have created because I had to, I just, I had to have that, that 18 months of just focusing on recovery. And it was hard for a million reasons why it's hard. Um, but yeah, if, I totally agree. If you, if you don't think you can do both and you're really honest about that, you don't listen to anorexia telling you that you can, you listen to that little voice that's you in there somewhere. If you really think that you want to and you need to just focus on recovery, then give yourself a bit of time out. And go back to it. Later. You'll be a better student when you go back. Absolutely. Well, I think we've covered a lot, a lot of today, don't we? <laughs> so if anybody is listening in and wants to contribute um, their own insights and experiences on anything we've talked about, then please do um, message us and uh, drop us an email. You can uh, email at hello at wednesdayschild.co.uk and we're on all the social media channels. So get in touch and stay well in the meantime. <laughs>